Daniel Bryan is a submission specialist, and Bryan's in-ring ability has guaranteed him a championship match within the next year. But many say that everything Bryan knows, he's learned from his teacher, William Regal. Tonight, the teacher and the student, the master and the scribe in our main event. From Television City in Hollywood. All right, you guys, you know this is for fun, so take it easy and give him a good show. Now stay tuned for professional wrestling live from the Springfield Crapolarium. Tonight, a Texas death match. Dr. Hillbilly versus the Iron Yuppie. One man will actually be unmasked and killed in the ring. I hope they kill that Iron Yuppie. Thinks he's so big. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Welcome to episode 222 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winston. And today, holy crap, is this song loud and long. Feels like all of the music in WWE around this time sounded like this. I guess, I guess it's a real band, because I looked it up, but I didn't write down what the band's name is, because I really don't care. I'm going to be doing a similar experiment later with the wrestlers who are in the opening theme of this edition of WWE superstars from november 10th 2011 it's dated on a thursday because this is the era where superstars isn't airing on any tv oh no it was on youtube at this point now this is a period of time that i do not cover very frequently in part because i i've been very upfront about the fact that i stopped watching in well in 2001 after wrestlemania x7 like a lot of people, but I kind of hung on. I ordered WrestleMania 18 on pay-per-view, and then when they did the draft, I was like, F this. I- I'm not watching I'm not watching two different shows to see the people that I like, so I just decided to watch none, and then didn't really come back until 2014. So here we are in 2011, a year in which a lot of people did come back because of CM Punk, who, has he been in the news recently? I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, I, I do have some thoughts on that. And of course, it is a nice excuse to have two of my all-time favorites in a match on this show, Daniel Bryan and William Regal. Now, they had other matches, such as in Memphis Championship Wrestling in May of 2001, when WWE or WWF at that time, I was not like Austin on that one, but... There was an arrangement between the WWF and Memphis at that time, and Regal was down there for whatever reason, and Daniel Bryan at that time was a mere 20, 21 years old, something in that ballpark. So I'm very excited to cover this, because there are certain things... I mean, a lot of my takes are well-established at this point. Like, you know that I'm gonna, you know, have some sort of weird obsession about the Warlord-Hogan match, Survivor Series 88, ding, Sid, Sid's wardrobe, that sort of stuff. 
So, you know, this is an opportunity for me to basically write my audio love letter to Daniel Bryan or Bryan Danielson as his real name. And, you know, that, that'll be his name in AEW coming up. And kind of a cheap way to give my thoughts. I mean, I'm not a huge modern product guy. I mean, I, do, I, I did go to SummerSlam and I did go to WrestleMania. But I think part of it is because I think WWE does a good job with, you know, putting together the live event presentation I mean, also maybe it was a function of the seats that I was in. I, I, I don't, I don't know. It, it's probably a lot of things, but you know, maybe, maybe trying to reconnect with what I love in wrestling. I've done this before when I did three weeks of Terry Funk shows four years ago. But anyway, before I get into all that, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greensmountain at gmail dot com, facebook dot com slash blah blah blah, and on Twitter. At GF Allentown Pod, that is at GF Allentown Pod. No, I have not deleted the Bird app from my phone, but I have successfully cut back from looking at it as frequently. I mean, <laughs> I have two accounts that I bounce back and forth to, but one thing that has helped is that, you know, when I don't have a baseball team that's on a 19 game losing streak, I, I tend to tweet less. Where I'm like, you know, death to the manager, basically, after every single loss. I mean, I have to say, and I know I promised I would stack this at the end of shows, but for, oh my god. As somebody who cares this much about a 42-93 and 93 team, or whatever the hell their record is now, it's almost like performance art at this point. You think I'm doing some sort of Andy Kaufman bit, and I've already explained, I never particularly found Andy Kaufman very funny at all. Also... I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the 70th edition. Hard to believe we've done 70 of those things, Keithy and I. WWF Superstars from July 27th, 1991. So some 20 years before this show. We're kind of working our way through the summer of 91, just watching these superstars. The only flaw is that we're getting shows with original commercials, but they're the same one week after week after week. I think... Three three weeks in a row now we've seen Lando Calrissian for Cole forty five. And we don't we don't need to see that ad again, but you know, they, it keeps running through that summer. So I think we'll be doing an August of ninety one show. I don't know if we're gonna do the Superstars or Wrestling Challenge because when you get to the second weekend of August, you it's one of those rare weeks where the more notable thing happened on Challenge. Yes, Heenan appeared with Ric Flair's NWA world title, big gold on superstars, but it was on challenge where it felt like it it felt like it happened first because he just whips it out at the end. First time whipping out and, and Ric Flair were involved in the same thing without somebody's penis being shown. <laughs> now, before I get into the whole AEW and all out, which I didn't order on pay-per-view because I was out at a friend's house, and I wasn't going to be back until about 9, 9.30. And at that point, it's like, I have, I would have had to have avoided social media, which is good. Maybe I should just put myself in positions where I have to avoid spoilers, because that'll just keep me off Twitter forever. Maybe, maybe that's the game plan going forward. I'll just do something like that. I'm recording right now in a very awkward position. I can't sit on my couch anymore and lean into the microphone the way I think I'm getting too fat or something because I, I don't run anymore I walk long distances I mean it's it's not gonna you know help me in weight loss quite as much I'm kneeling before the microphone but because there is not much space between the couch and the coffee table I I have my knees sort of to the side it's it's really strange I take a picture of it but it what it, it doesn't really matter so last Thursday 
I, I, going to minor league baseball games is something that I've espoused that I, I really enjoy over over the years on this podcast. And of course, that was taken away from me last year. And the minor league team closest to me, the Lowell Spinners, was also taken away from me in the brutal slaying of the New York Penn League by Rob Manfred uh, last year, which I think the city of Lowell should be a little bit more pissed off about that because they're, they're now, they now have to pony up to maintain a park that barely gets used. But anyway, made my way up to New Hampshire. I, I hardly ever go there on weeknights, but... I finished work early, so I drove up on a Thursday for a minor league game. It was Portland versus New Hampshire, which is basically the Eastern... Oh, sorry, they don't call it the Eastern League anymore. It's basically like the roller derby from the 70s, where it was always Kansas City versus Los Angeles on ABC Wide World of Sports. You're like, but Pete, how the hell did you know that? You were born in 1979. Don't worry about it. I, I just know that that was the way that they did things. And because I was able to get my beloved front row seat behind the visiting team on deck circle i'm i'm long since past the days where i like talk to the guys and you know engage them in some sort of conversation because it's occurred to me that i'm actually old enough to be a lot of these dudes fathers and this actually would come into play a little bit because sitting behind me in the first inning of this game was basically i hit the lottery for the worst people that could sit behind me at a minor league baseball game, which would be three know-it-all boys in high school. So age 14 to 17, somewhere in that area. And there was this one kid who just did not shut up. Now, I know I do a solo podcast where it's just me talking, talking, talking into a microphone. But this is different, okay? I'm not doing the talking like there's not somebody sitting over there who has to listen to everything that I'm saying right now. Even though you're listening to it right now, I I, I give you my blessing on that. So anyway, I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to be a long freaking night. Thank God I got this 32-ounce smutty nose beer, and I'm on my way. But then those those kids, they go up to the kid. I don't know where they had. They screwed. So they went up. They went away. And then they, the, who took their place? But the moms, and I got to tell you, the the moms delighted me to no end. Now, I didn't engage them in conversation until the sixth or seventh inning when one of them dropped their cell phone and it landed in my row and I gave it back to her. We we shared a happy glance with each other. And there were, there were four of them. Now, I don't remember everything I said to them, but I think I described the time I got thrown out of a Bruins game for getting into a fight. And the woman was talking about getting thrown out of Great Woods which is what they used to used to call the Xfinity Center here in Massachusetts. So it, it was it was a very pleasant sort of thing. <laughs> I should go to more minor league baseball games during the week at night. Unfortunately, though, it's mid-September, and there's not going to be too many more opportunities for that. But I, th- I think I do have one more week of that next week. So I'm going to make a note of it. Now, I, I generally would not do it on a Wednesday not because of AEW Dynamite, but because I go help my mother with her trash, which is why I rarely ever see the first hour of Dynamite, if at all. So, But I am going to start DVRing it, and I'm going to pick and choose certain things, because I have very specific tastes for what I like in AEW. I love Rampage. It's a one-hour show. I, I should do one of the Rampage episodes, Like, granted, there's only been like four of them so far, on this show. I do one-hour programs, and th- those are basically dead. 
And WWE, they freaking do three-hour Raws now. It's almost ten years that they've been doing three-hour Raws, basically at gunpoint from the USA Network. Ironic, considering, you know, gunplay got them in trouble with the network 25 years ago. Anyway, SmackDown's two hours, network TV, fine. You know, they, they they get their payday, but honestly, trying to fill all that time, as has been established can you know lead to a certain creative malaise which they've been in for oh i don't know the last seven years <laughs> i would think so it i knew when i got back in in 2014 you know and people would say oh nobody's ever going to challenge wwe because you know roh lacks the will to do it because of sinclair broadcasting and tna you know there's always this that and the other with those guys but People said that about Sears Roebuck for years. I love, it makes me sound incredibly old. Sears Roebuck. What? It's just Sears. Yes. The place that I bought my lawnmower in 2013 no longer exists. But if you had told me in the 80s, oh, yeah, that place is just going to go kaput, you know, I, I wouldn't have understood that because it felt so big that it would last forever. I'm not saying WWE is going to sink under some sort of AEW onslaught, but to say that they would be number one forever, I think, is a fool's errand. Now, All Out, which I have seen clips of it. Now, I, I have not watched full matches. However, there was one part of the CM Punk match with Dar- Darby Allen that I particularly enjoyed, but I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later. It's the the debuts in AEW. I, I kind of want to you know, go through this. And I guess I, I'm talking about the more recent ones. I'm not talking about Andrade and Christian, which are two separate things. Like Christian kind of sold his soul to get a win over uh, the ramen-haired guy and then lose to him uh, at the end of the pay-per-view, you know, at the end of All Out. And then Andrade is maybe underutilized in WWE. I I think we can all agree on that. And he goes to AEW and hasn't really been utilized yet. And nobody's entirely sure where he fits. So let's let's put him off to the side. Let, Let me start with CM Punk, who is only tangentially mentioned on this show because he's the biggest part of WWE in the year 2011. And I've said in the past that I love the idea of CM Punk and everything that he represents. If I remember correctly, the exact words that I used on a podcast long ago was, the idea of CM Punk is better than that in practice because of him being so iconoclastic, but him also really being like that, you know, maybe caused him some political headaches. But honestly, I think that's what makes him interesting i mean really just looking through his entire career which pretty much spanned the period of time where i was not watching wrestling because i started watching the day after the 2014 royal rumble because number one i thought it was hilarious that the the reaction when daniel bryan did not enter that royal rumble and the way the crowd just crapped on everything but i was also fascinated by the fact that cm punk had just mysteriously left overnight and you know i read the stuff online like everybody else and it kind of got my attention as like one of those events was like hmm i want to see what they do here because this guy has been a huge deal for a number of years and now he's just sort of gone but punk is a guy 
who I think fits what I want in a professional wrestler. Yeah, he's not, you know, 300 pounds or anything like that, but like somebody, Bret Hart, as an example, he truly cares about the craft of professional wrestling. I know I always make fun of, like, comedians talking about the craft of comedy, but this goes into what I was alluding to earlier, where apparently, and somebody put some brilliant person i think it's like bret hart fans on instagram who did this there were a number of spots in the cm punk darby allen match that are almost taken exactly from the bret hart one two three kid match from raw in july of 1994 which i believe i covered on a gfa live in the past couple of months and I, I absolutely loved it. I, I got such a great kick out of that. And some clearly CM Punk, you know, he it was all an actor. Like, I hate wrestling. He probably actually did in the moment. He was just kind of beaten down. So for him, I'm actually going to give an analogy to, like, a real-world figure. Like, in, in this case, outside of wrestling, and I am for the other two debuts as well. My analogy for CM Punk is John Fogarty. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, come on, Fogarty in the rock and roll is not in CM Punk's class. But hear me out here. Fogarty is an immense talent, okay? Uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival was basically just him. I, I think people need to know that if they don't. Because I know that band was only around for four or five years, 67 to 72. They, they had an ugly breakup where Fogarty was basically in litigation with those guys for years and years afterwards. And he had falling out with his own brother. So, I mean, that, that tells you. He's a very persnickety, kind of prickish sort of dude. And you could say the same maybe for CM Punk as well. But what happened with John Fogarty is he had this long break away from music. I think it was about seven, eight years. Sound familiar? From the mid-'70s to about 1985. Somewhere in that ballpark when the Center Field album comes out. But what happened was that break, when Fogarty comes back at the age of, I think he was around 40 at that point, it kind of saved his voice a little bit. And maybe it gave him a little bit of perspective and made John Fogarty's later solo career even stronger. Which is why I'm very excited for Sia. But I mean... When I was in Las Vegas, I stopped what I was doing at 7 o'clock, because Rampage's 10 p.m. Eastern airs live, 7 p.m. on the West Coast. I stopped what I was doing. Now, I was pissed off because the TV was all choppy. You know, one of the problems of that hotel room. But obviously a terrific promo, despite my misgivings. Like, I'm not entirely sure why this match is happening. I guess he wants to prove himself against the younger guys. I... It, it, it didn't seem clear to me originally, but I, I'm willing to overlook that. Now, on the on the flip side, uh, for th- those who know me personally, and I, I don't talk about Adam Cole on this podcast very much, but I'm sorry. People need to stop putting him on the same level as CM Punk and Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson. I, I'm at that point now where I don't know exactly what to call him, but I'll get, I'll get to him more in a second. Like, Adam Cole has never done anything for me on any of these shows. Now, I I know apparently he is a very, very nice man. He is nice to children. I'm sure he's good to animals and and everything like that. And I know I say that for just about everybody. 
Well, you know, wrestlers from the 80s probably weren't good good with animals. I mean, see Bulldogs British and Roberts Jake. But anyway, it just feels like Cole is the kind of guy who gets pumped up by people as, as being really, really good. And, and as this guy that I just don't see him as. Like, oh, he held the PWG Gorilla Championship? You know what? Pro Wrestling Gorilla... You know, pro wrestling gorilla is this. Will you stop? Yeah, there are guys who came through pro wrestling gorilla that I like. I mean, Kevin Owens, who apparently we're going to be seeing in AEW in 2022. I mean, that that almost seems like completely telegraphed to the point where I th- I think he might be a little too forward. That maybe be a little bit more subtle with that, Kev. But in any event, yeah, it's it, it's not necessarily because of that. It's like I. F- he feels like a New York... Not to bring in baseball again. Baseball, baseball, baseball. But seriously, I floated a conspiracy theory on GFA Live about how the Yankees don't get tested for PEDs because you ever notice how former Yankees always get popped and suspended for PEDs, but that when they're on the Yankees, that never seems to happen? And I've always found that strange. But another phenomenon... And I don't know, maybe they're just lucky, Pete. Maybe this is the reason, but... Like every single time they make it one of those trades where they trade, you know, three prospects for Joey Gallo or Jerry Callow or Zach Britton or Aroldis Chapman, they they never give every single one of those prospects turns out to be a complete bust. Every one of them. I mean, like every single one that gets traded just completely suck. I I mentioned all those guys. The one that hits me is Zach Britton because that was with the Orioles and they traded Okay, Dylan Tate, this is our number 10 prospect or number 10 pitching prospect. He was a high draft pick or whatever. Dylan Tate sucks. I hate to I hate to inform you of this, and it's a fact that I've had to come to grips with over th- this year. There's an article out there on one of the Yankee blogs, Pinstripe Alley, about how fortunate the Yankees have been, and it referred to Dylan Tate as he's pitched above replacement level the last two years. Like, oh, what are we supposed to give him, a freaking standing ovation here? This isn't Little League. It's the freaking American League East. I'm trying to expect a little bit more from him. So anyway, to bring it back to Adam Cole, he is the Dylan Tate of professional wrestling. I know that is very, very harsh. You know, (laughs) somebody is out there is like, I cannot believe you're comparing Adam Cole to a guy that I've never even heard of. But in my world, he, he is Dylan Tate because I'm just, I just don't see it with him. He comes in, he shows up like, okay, I'm going to hang behind ramen noodle guy and uh, 21st century rockers. That that's what I'm going to do. I mean, smaller rockers, whatever name you want to come up with. Like, oh, I'm going to be the fourth guy in this heel faction. Like, you're not going to believe this, but Adam Cole is part of a heel faction. Wow, it's like, <laughs> oh, well, I guess, I guess he wasn't part of the heel faction. That that had gone away when he was feuding with the punter from the 2014 Colts. But uh, yeah, that 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 was another great NXT thing. Which brings me, okay, I don't want to be Captain Bringdown here to Daniel Bryan. And uh, now, okay, all right, I can call him Brian Danielson, but he's Daniel Bryan on this show. That's his WWE name. So I'm going to have to switch back and forth. It's going to be like speaking in tongues. He's why we're here, why I'm doing this podcast. Because to me, and this might surprise you because I don't pay a lot of credence to the quote-unquote modern product. How many shows have I done past 2001? Maybe this is the third one now. 
in four and a half years of doing this. But to me, Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, is in the tippy top of all guys in professional wrestling history. I'm, I'm putting him in that Terry Funk level because he does so many things extraordinarily well. Now you say, okay, well, like CM Punk, he's not a big guy. But to me, the size of Daniel Bryan actually feeds in to what he is as a professional wrestler. Because when he's a heel, he's this little conniving prick that you hate. Because, you know, it's this smaller guy. Oh, I'd like to see, you know, him get his ass kicked. But as a face, he's this charismatic underdog which, you know, in part, that might also be because being in WWE, and it is a bigger man territory. I wouldn't say that it's a big man territory still, but it's a bigger man territory. And, he, yeah, he does look smaller to all of them, but that feeds into the whole underdog persona. But when he had the little heel run in 2018 and 2019... When he won the world title off Styles and then lost it to Kofi at WrestleMania. That was fantastic. That was one of the few times where like a WWE-generated character in the last couple of years like got my attention as being something really, really good. Now, I know Dan- Daniel Bryan and Bryan Jonathan, he's not going to be in like death matches. And God knows, you know, for, for his health's sake... <laughs> I want him protected at all costs. I do not need him dumped on his head in his third match in AEW, and then, you know, he's out for a year. Somebody expressed the opinion of, well, I'm a little worried because he's going to a place that doesn't have the same health standards as WWE. And it was an interesting, weird game that they played for a while when Brian retired because WWE would not clear him, and then eventually he mysteriously gets cleared, and then all of a sudden he's in WrestleMania 34. But, yeah, I just want to make the point that I enjoy watching Danielson. I I should just call him Danielson, like I'm freaking (laughs) Mr. Miyagi, you know, in in Danielson in the, you know, horrible apartment building for which Miyagi neglected his duties. But it, it makes me sad that I missed watching wrestling in real time for... Brian Danielson's run in you know, Ring of Honor, the whole American Dragon stuff in Japan, and then even you know his WWE stuff coming in with the Nexus, choking out Justin Roberts in one of his finest moments, although he posed with him for a photo in which Roberts was wearing a bow tie, which was a nice little touch. But yeah, it's, to not, not see Daniel Bryan for, for all of those years, I would even have a greater appreciation for him. Oh yeah, he does comedy really well too. Unlike some of the other guys in AEW who are the one thing that just keep me from falling in love with this promotion is Ramen Noodle Guy with the world belt who uh, thinks he's funny doing jazz hands. You know, I, I'm not going to do the cornet thing and just, you know, obsess over him for 25 minutes or anything. But, I mean, come on. Stop pret- stop pretending like this guy is the greatest of all time or anything. It's, it's, it's not even close to anywhere near the cup, my cup of tea. And besides, I, I, don't, I don't even want that kind of tea. I, I want either bubble tea or, or green tea because I guess, I guess I'm, I'm a fancy boy. Now, did WWE utilize Daniel Bryan correctly all the time? Uh, Well, sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't. I mean, that's pretty much like 
anybody else below that C- Cena Orton level. I mean, hell, even even those guys were kind of mishandled at certain points. Daniel Bryan was not on the 2011 Survivor Series, which is the first thing I looked up because it's November of 2011. And I thought, hmm, that's strange because he certainly is a pushed commodity. He's a face at this point. And he's got the Money in the Bank briefcase. And then I realized, oh, yeah, that's right. You can keep the Money in the Bank briefcase holder out of these shows because he can then, you know, he could run in at any time. I mean, he's always on the mind. But, God, I, I just want him to stay healthy because he is he is so freaking likable. And I enjoy watching him. The only thing I'm afraid of is that he's too big of a star to be on Rampage. So that means I'll never see him, never see him live. But... Yeah, it's a, it's a weird spot that I that that we're that I'm doing on this show. Like I didn't come back in 2011, like a lot of other people, except in the fact that I started reading about wrestling a lot more. I know Shoemaker was trying to you know cram reality era down everybody's throat at that point. David Shoemaker of the Ringer, but on this show we have some people, some names that I actually am familiar with. Although some of them would change later on, such as Michael McGillicuddy, which, you know, I guess I guess we all have regrets in life. Alex Riley, Justin Gabriel, and, and Kurt Hawkins, they're, they're, they're all in this show in addition to the Daniel Bryan versus William Regal match. So, yeah, I, I kind of know those guys. I'm going to do the best with the information I have. I did run long with the intro because, I mean... What, what am I really going to say about the Kurt Hawkins versus Alex Riley match? I mean, who knows what I'm going to find to talk about. But the good news is, this episode of Superstars is an actual WWE upload. Of course, that's because this was this is how they aired the program back in the day, as I said earlier. So it just means it's never going to be taken down, unless they get really vindictive, for which I would not put it past them. So now I'm almost at 30 minutes for this intro, which, you know, is, is a little bit long to hear me talking. So time to get into some 2011 WWE action. Superstars, November 10, 2011 from Merry Old England. Pleased to report that I have adjusted my positioning here so that I'm back actually sitting rather than awkwardly kneeling sideways. This show was taped in the United Kingdom both nights in Liverpool. Yes, this was actually taped on two different nights, but in the same arena, the Echo Arena in Liverpool, November 7th and November 8th of 2011. The Daniel Bryan Regal match was taped on the 8th, which is a shame because it had a much lesser crowd. I mean, that's that's going to happen when you're running back-to-back nights, even in the UK. So at this time in 2011, in, in more recent years, the WWE runs the then, now, forever bit, and they show all the people through history. But I have to admit, this one, the one from 10 years ago where they kind of show everything in sort of a chronological order with like super old wrestling and then it leads up to the current day i can kind of dig that one yes sir we promised you a great gorgeous george the WrestleMania. everyone has a uh, ladies and gentlemen it is electric you are fine. 
I will confess that they kind of glossed over the olden days, maybe a little bit too soon, because I, I like that black and white footage that it started out with. Also, Gorgeous George, well, they're not on friendly terms with Bruno yet, so they're not mentioning his name, but I just find it funny that Gorgeous George and this company really have nothing to do with each other. So we now we go into the loud superstars intro with the music so uh, once again i've done this on gfa live with keithy with the superstars open from 1991 i don't know maybe it was just because we were trying to figure out when tugboat got taken out and who took his spot i think we determined that it was irs so even though this is i don't even know if i would classify this as a c d e f g h i j k l m n o p show like, I, I don't know where this fits in in the scheme of things. I mean, you got Raw, you got SmackDown. I guess this would be the third show. I mean, unless I'm completely missing Saturday Morning Slam. I don't know. Main event doesn't start until 2012, which they cared about for a little while. I remember that was going to air on, like, PAX TV or some My TV or something like that. I, I always thought it was strange at the time, I, since I was only kind of tangentially into rational like i said i was reading at that point so who is in the open on superstars now i decided to write it all down and i regret my decision on this the reason being is oh crap i forgot this is a kevin dunn production so the cuts are going to come you know very very heavy here and all right i i wrote it all down here and it's literally 10 lines of text. This took me a long time. So please, bear with me. So our 2011 Superstars Open is Randy Orton, I think John Morrison, Masked Guy. Oh, believe me, there's more of that where I couldn't identify people. Because it's like, the guy who's not Rey Mysterio Jr., it does not look like him. Mark Henry, went too fast, couldn't see it. Alberto Del Rio. Uh, Undertaker, Triple H, CM Punk, The Miz, another masked guy, Cody Rhodes wearing the mask, wearing that clear Rip Hamilton mask. That is it, Rip Hamilton or Rich? I can never remember which guy. The guy on the Pistons who used to wear the mask. Santino Morella, Jack Swagger, Natty, Daniel Bryan, John Cena, Kelly Kelly. At least I think it was Kelly Kelly. Another masked guy, generic white man. Another generic white man, R-Truth, Big Show, Some Brunette Lady, Mark Henry, Kofi Kingston, Kane, John Cena, Big Show, Seamus, Random White Guy, Christian, The Miz, Some Guy Flying Through the Air Who I Can't Identify Because They Cut Away Too Quickly And I Couldn't See His Face, Randy Orton, Undertaker, Seamus, But The Exact Same Seamus Shot That We Saw Like Eight People Ago. Seamus shot that we saw, uh, please don't try and say that at home. The Bellas, Wade Barrett, John Morrison, again, I'm pretty sure, Beth Phoenix, <sighs> Dolph Ziggler, The Miz, Triple H, but the same Triple H one where he was like the sixth guy in the order here, CM Punk, Alberto Del Rio, and then finally, John Cena. Good Lord. I mean, like, none of these guys are going to be on this show. I'm always amused by stuff like Hulk Hogan, like, Hulk Hogan wrestling video on, like, the open to wrestling challenge. Like, Hogan's not having a match on challenge. All right. Like, how many of these guys are actually going to be on, like, the YouTube version of Superstars? Maybe, maybe Kofi. 
I mean, yes, Daniel Bryan's here, but Daniel Bryan is on here because it's a match with William Regal, and it's probably something that he he desired greatly. I mean, what we usually get is something along the lines of Justin Gabriel versus Kurt Hawkins, which is our opening match. Gabriel weighing in at 213 pounds, and I've been rather outspoken of like, hey, could we just go back to inflating the weights ever so slightly? I mean, I know Darby Allen probably weighs 170 pounds, like, in reality. But can we say he just weighs 201 pounds? I mean, can, can we just say that and just suspend this? You know what? I'm willing to look the other way on the Gorilla Monsoon weights and measures. I mean, Gorilla, Gorilla's in the ground. I mean, he, he's not going to complain about it. So I think it would actually be a nice tribute to him to overstate the weights of everybody. At the same time, please understate my weight. I, I would like to... Take some of my, I would like to donate 20 pounds to Darby Allen and, and other guys who might need it, who are, who are less fortunate. I'm certainly doing a good job <laughs> trying, to, trying to build up a donation base for everyone. Kurt Hawkins, he's a guy who was released early on in the pandemic when I don't think WWE quite understood how much money they stood to make from this by not going around and spending the overhead on doing live shows everywhere and just staying at the Performance Center. So they got rid of him. Of course, they did have kind of a large roster, which goes into the whole Nick Khan thing I was talking about. But yes, cocky guy from Long Island. Yes, what a highly original character that you never see everywhere all over Nassau County. Now, our, na- our announcers for this one are Josh Matthews and Matt Stryker. Now, again, I, I'm only familiar with Matt Stryker from everybody being annoyed with him as an announcer. Like, when I read reviews about stuff from this era. And also, he did was an announcer on Lucha Underground, which I did watch here and there. And I did, I did a podcast about that in Lucha Afterground some years ago. It's kind of a wink and a nod, this team, because they were together on the WWE version of ECW but only in 2009, so like not at the beginning of that, more towards the end. So I'm not expecting Vince and Jesse here. <laughs> I think that would be completely unreasonable. And I, I, again, trying to figure out what I'm going to have to say about Justin Gabriel and Kurt Hawkins. I don't know. Gabriel, I remember as the guy in the rabbit costume when Adam Rose had all that stuff going on in 2014. You're like, how the hell do you remember Adam Rose? Like, I literally remember everything that occurred from April of 2014 through September or October of 2014. And basically the point where I just became furious is when Cesaro was jobbing for the fourth straight pay-per-view after you know being set up with the Andre Battle Royal push. One of the great moments that, that I've seen in more recent years. And, yeah, he, he loses 2 to nothing to Dolph Ziggler at, like, Night of Champions 2014. So, yes, Gabriel was in the rabbit costume as, as part of the whole Rosebud entourage. And he was the next-to-last guy eliminated in that famous SummerSlam 2010 match where it was the Nexus versus Team WWE. So, I, I, get, I don't know if he was second on the pecking order necessarily to Wade Barrett. I don't quite... You know, I'm not going to profess to have any understanding of, like, the pecking order of the next. All I know is that Wade Barrett was, like, the lead guy in that group. Gabriel quit right before the 2015 Royal Rumble, which kind of cracked me up because that show was 
such a disaster in many ways because of, oh, Daniel Bryan is going to be put in the Rumble this year. Oh, we're going to eliminate him in five minutes by Bray Wyatt. No, no, no. thinking I might have had a little smidgen of hope for Bray Wyatt still at that point because I believe he was doing the diesel spot in that early part of the 2015 Royal Rumble where he was eliminating guys and then Bryan finally came out at number 10. But as I said, he wasn't there very long. Anyway, back to Justin Gabriel. I have to use this time. If if I'm going to say anything about these modern events, I have to do it in this show. Because there's no way I'm cramming it into a Tito Santana-Dale Wolf match from 1989. I mean, that's just not happening. But Gabriel, okay, so he leaves Royal Rumble 2015. Might not have been the greatest time for him to depart. But then you think, okay, this is a time when then the, the indies... We're starting to have, I'm not going to say a boom, but at the very least, they they could get on, you know, a streaming service, you know, like IWTV or, or whatever they are. I mean, I'm not familiar with all of it, but for whatever reason, he never, he never quite, he wasn't one of those guys who took the time, built himself up out there or went to TNA to rebuild himself like a like a Drew McIntyre did, or, or Lashley, who I think was just gone forever and then eventually made his way back after a big run elsewhere. Now, Hawkins, I, I just link him with Matt Cardona, a.k.a. Zack Ryder. I mean, speaking of dudes who have kind of reinvented themselves, I have to give the thumbs up to him for that whole GCW thing because, well, you know, when he won the title, it certainly pissed a lot of people off in a very organic way. And like legitimate people were legitimately angry, it, like in, in a way that you, you don't remember seeing for a very long time. At this point, Hawkins is gimmick. He's carrying a cane because he says he has some sort of injury. But what he does is he hides it under the ring apron in hopes that he can come back to it later and use it at some point in the match. I don't know who this referee is. I think it might be Scott Armstrong. But oh my god, they have this guy miked way too much. I can hear him like, talking to the guys, and it's a little distracting through this match. But Justin Gabriel and Kurt Hawkins, another thing that they have in common is they both side with Global Force Wrestling after they left WWE. Now, Hawkins came back in 2016, but yeah, Global Force Wrestling. Remember that? Another one of those Jeff Jarrett things where uh, he just kind of starts it, and then all, all of a sudden it like goes away. It like never materializes into anything. Like, oh, he's going to join up maybe with Billy Corgan or something like that. No, no. There was, like, no follow-through on it. That's why, like, I don't understand sometimes in wrestling. I I, I get why you'd want to take guys with experience and put them in roles now. But the fact that Jeff Jarrett keeps getting chances, like, all right, there's really really no more need for this at this point. I mean, we kind of know what he is. And same thing applies to Terry Taylor. Like, how does this dude get backstage jobs at this point? Like, how, how good could he possibly be for, you know, the... I saw a story the other day where Tony Schiavone basically had to tell him to... Okay, the backstory is that Terry Taylor asked about Britt Baker, like, how how's she doing? But did it in a way where, you know, Terry Taylor was thinking, you know, she was some sort of floozy he could hook up with from you know 1985 mid-south and tony shivani apparently took exception to this and told him hey don't you ever do that again 
By the way, I'm perfectly fine with Tony Schiavone going around and being this father figure to everybody in professional wrestling and kind of standing up for what is right and true. And also, I could picture Tony Schiavone saying all that, which is why I believe the story to be true. Now, Justin Gabriel, as, as they're trying to you know build a little bit of character with these guys, and I thank Stryker and Matthews for this because... I don't have very much to go on, but apparently Justin Gabriel has taken up a new hobby. Justin Gabriel recently took up spelunking. Say it again. Spelunking. Hey, hey, hey. The uh, art of cave diving. Yeah. Yeah. Justin Gabriel is quite the daredevil. Hey, Wouldn't that hurt to dive into a cave? It's underwater cave diving. You left out that, that one little... It's cave diving. Underwater. I don't miss working with you at all. <laughs> okay. I have to wonder if this version of Superstars is one of those programs that Vince wasn't paying attention to so the announcers could say whatever they wanted, which, I I don't know, maybe this would be why you'd put these two guys on here. But this is apparently some sort of one-off because they did not regularly do Superstars during this period. But yeah, splunking sounds like one of those terms that is like a sex thing. But yeah, it has to do more with caves. Yeah, taking up a new hobby, or at at least trying new things. I mean... I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but I did look into skydiving in Las Vegas because they have that also in Gene, Nevada. But apparently I was 10 pounds too heavy and I didn't feel like cutting weight for that. So I think maybe I'll try that again. There's a place out here in Orange, Massachusetts, a little over an hour away. And with the foliage season coming up, maybe maybe that would be worthwhile in being able to see all the trees. It's nice and pretty and all that sort of stuff. So we got a waist lock by Hawkins. It did some arm work by Gabriel. Drop kick by Justin Gabriel, which is restaurant quality, I will admit. I guess seven and a half or eight Brunzels out of ten on that one. But one problem that I have with this match, and I, I don't know, this might be a function of modern wrestling, but I want to make the statement that there's no less effective move in modern wrestling than the Irish whip because it literally gets reversed 83% of the time. I mean, I saw three reversals of an Irish whip in the the same sequence, like, within 30 seconds of each other. Like, all right, so you you go for that move. It's just kind of creating constant movement. Is that what they're going for by reversing it every single time? I don't know. Like, why would a wrestler go do that move if it does get reversed so frequently? Anyway, Hawkins ends up outside for a powder. Gabriel kind of drop kicks him, I guess through the ropes, kind of hanging on, and then follows that up with a slingshot plancha. As Superstars rolls on. No, they don't actually go to commercial. They do run ads during the show, but it's just one of those, you know, ad in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and then it's like a 30-second thing. So they are, this commentary team, at the very least trying to win me over by using Gorilla Monsoon-isms. Let's go, gentlemen. Need you back in the ring. Let's go. i got to count you. One. Superstars have to account of 10 to get inside the ring. Otherwise, it is a count out and, of course, less money at the pay. You're a plethora of information as Justin Gabriel makes sure this one gets back inside the ring. And I saw a bonus, the Dustyism, by using the term pay window, although he didn't exactly say it the same way. Hawkins takes advantage of Gabriel trying to get back in the ring. Now we go to the ad break. When we come back, there's a step over toe hold by Gabriel. But then they kind of move on to the next thing. I'm like, okay, well, is, is he working the leg here or whatever? The, the, it goes for a pinfall, and the referee counts all weird. I have a number of problems with this guy. And during that last clip, you could hear the referee at the beginning of it. it, it it's just too loud. Like, wh- why is it coming through that clearly? 
as Stryker and Matthews, they discuss the 450 splash that Gabriel does, which I certainly anticipate seeing in this match. But they're saying, well, is he going to be able to do it if Hawkins continues working the leg? They talk, call Gabriel a daredevil. But then Hawkins does go back to the toehold. So, okay, that's that's good. He, he is working the leg. This match does make sense. <laughs> as he goes for a single leg crab. But then, I don't even know what to call this. He, he doesn't quite kick off Gabriel. It's almost like a leg drag. I, I don't know. Everybody talks about arm drags. There's no such thing as a leg drag. I guess it would be more like a drop toe or, or a whatever. But anyway, he flips out of a back suplex, Gabriel does, but then sells the leg on the landing. So I certainly appreciate that in an era where guys you know, forget that they're supposed to be selling and we get an sd jones memorial charge by kurt hawkins which that that made me happy because you know we're, we're talking 30 years after old special delivery spin tick spin kick by gabriel gets a two count but then he gets caught with a slam by hawkins who goes for a pin two count again blue thunder blue thunder bomb although i guess gabriel would call it something different and that gets the Sami Zayn Memorial 2 count. He's not fucking dead. I know, I know. But Sami Zayn is another guy that I would imagine ends up in AEW because I feel like his skills would be utilized maybe a little bit better there. Again, you know, maybe a smaller guy who is very good at character work through time. I mean, his babyface character in NXT in 2014 to 2015 was freaking awesome. And then in the main roster, they made absolutely no effort in order to make that work, which kind of made me sad. But he had some bad luck with injuries, especially like separating his shoulder before the match against John Cena in Montreal 2015, where he like does the thing with his arms to pump up the crowd. It's like the weird cousin of Randy Orton separating his shoulder by, you know, hitting the mat before, you know, starting the end of match sequence that he would like to do. I do want to add that I think Sami Zayn, if he wanted to go to AEW, maybe a little bit more subtle than Kevin Owens has been lately with with all the stuff that I talked about earlier. Gabriel does go to the top, but he gets crotched on the top rope, and Hawkins hits a back suplex off the top for two as Stryker and Matthews now talk about, you know, can Kurt Hawkins go for the kill here? Is he He's desperate to end it. And what that means is he goes for that cane that he hid underneath the top of the ring apron. But in doing that, he gets hit with an enziguri coming back, so he never gets to use it. And he pulls himself, Gabriel does, to the top rope, hits the 450, which, you know, given all the build for it, it was not exactly the John Cronus version. He, he's no John Cronus, which actually is probably for the best, considering that guy was a, apparently a complete lunatic. And you know it had to be bad if I'm calling it out since, you know, Cronus was like Boston guy. But anyway, you know, Gabriel's 450, you could tell he, he needed to pull Hawkins a little bit closer to the corner because he kind of barely made it on that rotation. I, I would say it wasn't really a 450. It was more like a 447, but I guess close enough if you, if you round up. So immaterial, those three, I think that's what we call it in the accounting field. So one, two, three. For Justin Gabriel, an extremely important win over Kurt Hawkins that I am sure people were buzzing about in the years following. (laughs) 
pretty clear to me at this point in 2011 that Vince McMahon has nothing to do with choosing the bumper music. It's it's a little too loud. This this decision has been put into somebody else's hands because you know what I can tell is because there are no horns. There need to be horns like like Bam Bam's theme or the Superstars or Challenge or all, all that stuff back in the 80s. But I guess the ship has sailed. They put up a graphic which says, did you know that The Rock has 1.4 million followers on Twitter, more than any other WWE superstar? Now, seeing this and now being 10 years in the rearview mirror, trying to extrapolate out how many followers does The Rock have on Twitter now? And I kind of played this game, and I thought, okay, well, I'll guess. And I, I, I wrote down 8.9 million. So I figured, okay, 1.4 to 8.9 I think, I knowing that I probably underestimated it, and indeed I did, the correct answer, when I checked, is 15.3 million. However, I do think my answer is somewhat correct because 40% of Twitter is fake. I don't know if anybody noticed that before, how just how fake most of Twitter is, especially with dudes who have eight digits at the end of their username. Because that's the auto-generated thing that comes up, and if you're creating a bot, that's probably what it's going to look like. So yeah, I mean, a lot of social media is totally fake, but especially Twitter, because they they never get ri- they get rid of these accounts, and then like people are outraged, like, oh my god, such and such personalities, you know, Twitter following account fell, like the number of followers they had. Oh, who cares? Really? Oh, no, we got rid of a bunch of Russian bots. Oh, no, they've been harming this country for quite some time. It's all totally fake. Anyway, I want to bring it back to wrestling here, because that is 100% real. And I really want to talk about this Alex Riley versus Mike McGillicuddy match. I mean, can you tell how fired up I am about this? Mike McGillicuddy, I mean, give me a freaking break here. I mean, what, what the hell kind of a name is this? I mean... He would eventually become Curtis Axel, which I think is more in line with what I would have gone for at the beginning. Now, I understand that maybe because you know his his father had been deceased now for almost 10 years, actually 2003, so eight years, and maybe didn't want to live in that shadow quite so much. But Larry Henning was still alive at that point. And, and I did enjoy his bit from the 2015 Royal Rumble where he got... Th- Basically was eliminated before he ever hit the ring, so he, you know, kept running a clock. Like, I've been in the Royal Rumble now for 31 days and whatever. Nice little something for an underneath guy to do. They maybe took it a little too far after after a while. They maybe let it run a little too long. Gee, WWE killing the joke? I, I can't believe that. But he's angrily yelling at the fans as he comes down the aisle, so trying his best to do effective heel work. As Stryker and Matthews, one of them says, oh, he's he does windsurfing in his spare time. It's like, yeah, way to kill the aura of your heels by by basically giving them like one of the, like, the weirdest hobbies. I mean, that killed John Kerry back in 04 when he was running for president. Like, oh, this guy windsurfs? Like, yeah, so way, way to kill off the number... I don't know. Where, where would where would McGillicuddy rank at this point? Would he be the number 31 heel in the company at this time? I'm not entirely sure. So Alex Riley on the other side, I know that he and I share a birthday a couple of years apart, and he went to Boston College, boo, but he was an actual good commentator on NXT at the point where I had started watching it back in 2014. He kind of had this thing as the analyst, 
And I thought he had a bright future at that. And I thought that he would stay in that role mainly because I don't know if announcers are office in WWE and they can get health benefits. I had always kind of thought so, but who, who knows how it is at this point. But it's certainly a hell of a lot easier on your body. And had he stayed in that role, you know, NXT in 2015 got really, really hot. Or at least, you know, in my opinion, I mean, it was certainly the most enjoyable part of it for me. But then he came out of retirement. You know, he had a little angle with Kevin Owens and then did an injury angle, allowing him to have knee surgery so that he could then come back in 2016. And then he was released in the middle of that year as part of the annual cuts. See, that used to be an annual thing. Now it's like a weekly <laughs> <laughs> that they that they cut guys loose. They mentioned him, the striker in Matthews, that he played quarterback, Alex Riley, at Boston College. Now, his real name is Kevin Kiley. His dad is a sportscaster, which, you know, I, I looked up some of the stuff that, that he did, and I think, think one of them was that, like, women have no place in the locker room or, or some such nonsense. Like, oh, okay, so, so I can see what that guy's about. So, okay. He played quarterback for Boston College. I'm like, okay, well, I don't remember him. And I figure he's a couple of years behind me. So it would be in the early 2000s that he would have been on the team. And sure enough, he has a – this is like the Moonlight Graham version of college football. One appearance for the 2000 Boston College Eagles, one attempt rushing – one positive yard. Now, I don't know if this was a kneel down at the end of the 48-7 to win over Navy in September of that year. And he just like did a quarterback sneak rather than step back and then take a knee. But he was behind two different quarterbacks on the depth chart. Tim Hasselbeck and Brian St. Pierre. Catholic Conference powers unite! Sorry, I got a little excited about that. Tim Hasselbeck is a very in high school in Westwood, Massachusetts. And Brian St. Pierre of St. John's Prep. I know he went to play in the NFL for the Steelers. St. Pierre did at some point. Hasselbeck, his older brother, Matt Hasselbeck, is probably more well-known for being the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks and also for losing to a 1-8 Malden Catholic team on Thanksgiving in 1991. Why don't you put on your running shoes and get to the fucking point? Boy, somebody really wants me to talk about Alex Riley versus Mike McGillicuddy. However, before we get to that, we get a little promo for Survivor Series, which is entirely built around, and Survivor Series that year was going to be at Madison Square Garden. The, this is very rare thing that they love to do whenever The Rock and John Cena was involved. WrestleMania 28 is, this is the only time this is going to happen. Once in a lifetime. Of course, before that was this, this is the only time they're going to team together. And then, <laughs> and then WrestleMania 29. Oh, one more time. Yeah, it's just a happy coincidence, and Cena ends up getting his win back. It's kind of like when I used to download stuff, you know, somewhat illegally back in the day off of, like, Bear Share. I know a lot of people use Napster as well, Kazaa, or whatever the hell that thing is called. And you download a song, and somebody would just load up. Like, I don't know what the purpose of this was. Like, do you get points for somebody downloading your song on one of those things? Or it's like a song, like... Here on this song, Bob Dylan, Axl Rose, Kurt Cobain, Bruce Springsteen, Jeff Lynn for some reason. Very rare. And they, they would write very rare in all capital letters. Like, 
Yeah, I know. It, that's completely fake because none of those people were in the same place at the same time. It's like that Super 70s sports who like unquestioningly like tweets out that photo of Tupac, Kurt Cobain, and Chris Farley. And it's like, yeah, you know that this is completely fake, right? And that these people were never in the same place at the same time. Anyway, back to wrestling. <laughs> I mean, McGillicuddy. I mean, it's it's Joe Henning. Yeah, I, I get it. He, he wanted to escape the shadow, I would imagine. He was the last Nexus guy in the group, I guess with David Otunga. According to the records, like, they were there for a month after Punk had basically, you know, wasn't the leader of the Nexus anymore. I don't know how they framed that on TV between Money in the Bank and SummerSlam, but that, that that's, that's what I was led to believe anyway, and it's not like I'm going to go back. However... Joe Henning has a 1979 birthday, so I'm, I'm kind of rooting for him. And I realize that, yes, a lot of the guys on this show, with it being 2011, would be born about the same time as me, which means that they're all dudes now in their early 40s. I mean, even Alex Riley is now 40 years old. But Joe Henning was in WWE between developmental and everything else to the time of his release 13 years I mean, that's you don't really think of him as being around that long, but I mean, he's he's now forty-two, so yeah, he, he's getting up there in age. I, I can I can certainly admit that. I mean, yeah, he's still younger than last year's Super Bowl MVP, but probably shouldn't have won Super Bowl MVP. But anyway, I do like that he did because I can say that I was younger than the last Super Bowl MVP. Now, since Alex Riley played quarterback at Boston College, and then was later changed to a linebacker, which I think was probably his best course of action. I couldn't find any stats on him there, you know, tackles or whatever. we got to give something to Michael McGillicuddy. So Stryker says that he was drafted by a Major League Baseball team at age 19. Now, this would mean Joe Henning's birthday, October 1, 79. That means he would have been drafted in 1998, or 99, or somewhere in there. So I actually took the trouble of going through the records to fact-check Matt Stryker. The entire 1999 MLB draft, nope, there is not anybody named Joe or Joseph Hennig, and was passed, I too, in the MLB draft, was passed over in all 278 rounds. (laughs) In, In actuality, they shortened it to 50 in 1998, and before that, they would just kind of keep going, because in 98, yeah, he, he wasn't drafted then. And in 1997, he was not among the 1,607 people drafted by Major League Baseball teams. And then in 98, they reworked it so that the draft was only 50 rounds. Because I think what was happening, and as I scrolled through to the bottom... The Tampa Bay Rays in the 97 draft just didn't stop drafting guys. They weren't going to start play until the following year in 98, but they had to build up their team. But they just kept drafting guys at the end. I mean, none of these, none of them ever came close to the majors, I would imagine, just to kind of fill out rosters. I wonder why the Arizona Diamondbacks didn't do that. But anyway... It, yeah, it's a very odd thing for Stryker to make up because even that stuff was fairly verifiable. I mean, this is this is 2011. Baseball Reference, you know, was around at that point. You know who d- actually did get drafted in Major League Baseball? Tom Brady. 
by the Montreal Expos, which is one of my favorite facts about him. That, like, that tells you how long Tom Brady has been around. He was drafted by the Montreal Expos. Like The thing that makes him sound kind of old, the thing that makes me sound kind of old, is the fact that my maternal grandmother was born in the 19th century. That's the thing that dates me the most. So they're talking about Alex Riley, and it's it's just really sort of open-ended character building, I guess. As far as Alex Riley goes, Alex Riley has something to prove. A lot of whispers in the locker room. This is a could be a breakout star, Alex Riley. Does he have it? Does he not? We're going to find out. What do the whispers in the locker room say about Alex Riley? Well, some people say he's a good-looking kid, he's a big kid, but but maybe he just doesn't have that, that tough streak, that fire in his belly. You know, maybe he hasn't been in enough fights to know what it takes to compete in a WWE ring. A nice takedown there by Alex Riley. Riley gets a DDT out of the corner, and Stryker and Matthews are like, why doesn't he go for the cover at this point? But, you know, it's still relatively early in the match. And McGillicuddy hasn't been worn down yet. Yeah, it's a stupid-ass name, and I'm frankly tired of saying it, unless it's Beulah, because Beulah can do whatever she wants. She can do whatever she wants to do. You got it, got it, got it. I think the distinction to make between that and Beulah is that Bill Alfonso bled a hell of a lot more than Janice's boss did in Goodfellas. So anyway, yeah, Joe Henning, just to go back, he, he certainly wanted to avoid the shadow of Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect, and I, I guess his, his grandfather as well, which brings me to another thing that that popped up on the face place the other day that just annoys me to no end and that's david benoit please stop it stop it right now please what in the actual frig is like why is this still happening like he goes to lance storm school and then just like leaves and then he pops up every freaking six months like, he's the freaking Equinox, and is like, oh, I'm interested in getting to wrestling. Dude, you're, like, in your early 30s, and you haven't even done anything. Also, uh, your dad committed a triple homicide and, and nearly took down the entire business, and you look exactly like him. So why don't you consider doing something else? You are more of an attention-grabbing whore than that stupid guy from the Nevermind album cover who's filing a lawsuit because apparently Nirvana wouldn't show up to his art exhibit or, or something you know, the surviving members like so so annoying please David Benoit go go away all right I mean I don't I don't want to hear from you anymore I don't want to hear if the dogs are in, locked in the enclosed pool area okay I don't want to hear from you anymore just go just go away I know you're probably not listening to this, but frankly, I'm just sick of that guy's face popping up like every every six months. It's crazy. Anyway, yeah, McGillicuddy, he kind of looks like a <laughs> discount redneck Ben Roethlisberger, at least during this time. I wonder how many old quarterbacks I can bring up during this particular match rather than talking about itself. Donovan McNabb. Okay, all right, that's just one final one. Anyway, he kind of awkward, but... He does do a spine buster, Alex Riley does, which is very important to get to the main event during this time in WWE. And then his finisher, I don't know what the hell they called it, but it kind of looked like the big ending, except only about 40% is good. So that's perfectly fine, I guess. The problem with these matches, that's how he picks up the win, Alex Riley does. The problem with these matches, is it goes 250-50. I know that... I guess there's no, quote, enhancement talents in WWE, but the problem is the winner of this match, like, Alex Riley doesn't get over by beating Michael McGillicuddy here, because it was basically just, 
50-50, gained advantage, hit his finisher, and that that was it. Like, is this a feature? Like, I don't quite understand what's going. Maybe maybe this is modern wrestling, and I I just don't get it. But no no, it goes back to the whole issue of nobody nobody. It's very very. I say nobody gets over in WWE. I think it's more nobody is nobody gets super over on their own. At least in more recent times. And the question remains, Matt, can CM Punk defeat Alberto Del Rio? Is Del Rio's championship in jeopardy? Well, personal animosity spills over into the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden, New York City. CM Punk brings his rebellious attitude to seek to defeat and destroy Alberto Del Rio. Maybe somebody should explain this to me, because I do not understand the appeal of Alberto Del Rio, because from the moment I saw him as a fan, all I could think is, let's take... 10% of the talent of Eddie Guerrero and just completely remove any likability whatsoever. And I mean, in his comeback tour in 2015, which you may have forgotten about when he comes back and beats Cena for the U.S. title because Cena was going off to do other things at that point. And for some reason, (laughs) Zeb Coulter is there with him in a wheelchair. It's just completely bizarre, all of that. But speaking of bizarre... The CM Punk saga between SummerSlam, where he beats Cena, and then Kevin Nash shows up for some reason. This is one of those things that I I should go back and watch, but then I'm like, oh yeah, Kevin Nash gets involved in a storyline in the year 2011. Like, why is that? And then Triple H has to beat CM Punk, and I don't understand what they were trying to do with him, other than cool him off greatly. And then he ends up winning the world title at Survivor Series anyway. But it's a good thing for WWE because of how petty they are. The 434-day reign that he would have right up to the 2013 Royal Rumble. You know that Roman Reigns is going to break that record because, oh, you know, Punk's in AEW now. So we've, we've got to break the record. It's just like once New Day started approaching Demolition's record title reign. Well, we're going to wipe that from the books because... We don't like the way how Bill Eadie has been so litigious over the years. They play a little promo for Survivor Series again. Just seeing R-Truth and Miz together is is really strange for somebody who was not watching at the time. Like, And as opponents for Cena and The Rock, there's a certain SummerSlam 91 vibe going on here. Now, I know that R-Truth was not a comedy character, at least I don't think he was at that time. And Miz has always kind of been Miz. He's maybe pushed a little bit more strongly. I mean, after all, he was in the main event of WrestleMania in the year 2011. So he he can always say that. But anyway, going right to our final match, the whole reason why we're here. There's a little slice of history to this Daniel Bryan versus William Regal match. It is, according to the history of WWE.com, the apparent debut of the Flight of the Valkyries remix the Daniel Bryan music that, you know, I, I I think it's a similar one that he has in AEW, but for some reason it just hasn't registered in my head. I saw the video from All Out, but when I had Dynamite on this evening as I was as I'm taping it, a rare chance for me to watch Dynamite live. I I had it on mute because I was conducting my NFL wins pool draft, and you know some things got to take precedence, even if Bryan Danielson is involved, and I think that that. That particular music, that song adds to his character 
especially as a face. Maybe not so much for his heel character, but, you know, you can remix it up any which way. As they flash back to SmackDown the previous Friday, I guess it was Friday Night SmackDown. I'm very confused with the way that they move Snack. Like, it was on Sci-Fi for a while. Like, I... I don't know. I don't have enough room in my brain to store, like, 2011 WWE stuff. And Brian has the Money in the Bank briefcase, and he thought, oh, maybe I should cash it in. Big Show says that I should because he just knocked out Mark Henry. But then he gets caught, and then the cash-in doesn't count. And it's it's that thing that I hate where, you know, the referee is like, oh, he didn't signal for the bell or whatever. It's like, like who are these referees? There's some sort of training issue here where... Oh, I've been handed a briefcase that has an established custom and set of rules. What do I do? Do I throw it up in the air? Do I wipe my ass with it? Like, I have absolutely no idea. But speaking of music, you know, I, I spent a great deal of time talking about Daniel Bryan's music. But William Regal had that kind of that dark, dun, dun, like in WWE. I, I like the more, you know, when, he, when it was Promenade in WCW. And then the other one, dun, 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 dun. it almost kind of sounded like the, Uf, the UFC, USC fight song. But and, I, and I've expressed my admiration just for how Regal would walk to the ring. Now, it's a little bit different. I mean, I'm talking WCW Regal where, you know, he's acting disgusted for all these vacationing tourists at, you know, MGM Studios or where the hell they were taping it. But this one is a little different because when it came to Regal's music, they played a little prank on him in his home country. They might not be my cup of tea, but I'm going to give kudos to Stryker and Matthews on this one for actually shutting up, although Matthews went into the exact same point. He did stop talking during the whole Regal thing, and we got to hear it nice and clear as Brian and Regal are laughing. They're they're having a good old time laughing about it, and it's nice that Regal has a sense of humor about that really weird interlude in his career where he was being booked by Vince Russo, which, yeah, nothing but a head-scratcher there. But, yeah, a request of both of these guys to work with each other, I would imagine, in Regal going back to the UK. I mean, why not just throw Daniel Bryan in with him? These two guys are two of the best, not not only professional wrestlers of all time, because that's, that's according to my standard, but also to the standard of if you asked any professional wrestler, who would you most want to work with? Like, within this era of the 2000s. Brian and Regal would probably be near the top of that list. I mean, each of these guys are responsible for at least one miracle. I mean, is there some sort of wrestling sainthood? You need two established miracles in Catholicism in order to be eligible, to be canonized, to be a saint. 
Now, I know that they've been fudging with the rules a little bit lately, and I'm not too happy about that. But Daniel Bryan carried Bray Wyatt to a four-star match. It was at least four stars at Royal Rumble 2014. And, yeah, I'm not huge on the star rating scale, but it was a really freaking good match there. And the fact that it was Bray freaking Wyatt, that, that counts as a miracle in my book for what Daniel Bryan pulled off. And Regal had an awesome feud with... 1994 Larry Zbysko. We're not talking 1980 Red Hot Larry or even 83 in Georgia Larry. We're talking 1994 Larry Zbysko where he's like full Jim Belushi. I know I mentioned this a while ago, probably on GFA Live, that there has to be a person out there who prefers Jim Belushi to John Belushi just on the basis of their work. So uh, I'm waiting for that person to come forward. Maybe they even listen to this show. I mean, it's not enough to just like Jim Belushi. You have to clearly find him superior to John Belushi in every sort of way. So the, Brian and Regal, they start, they lock up, they end up in the corner, and we get a nice clean break. So we're establishing this as a, kind of a scientific match for what that would be in the year 2011. As Regal puts on a wrist lock, but... Brian is able to kind of roll out of it for that counter that you often see where a guy will just kind of flip around a little bit. But Regal starts to do that, but then kind of cuts it short and actually uses his legs to counter. He, oh, I, I, I'm at a loss to try and try and explain this, this sort of wrestling. I, I can't do it justice. Brian goes for a drop kick and Regal just kind of takes a step back. And it's like, oh, I'm the crafty veteran, and I have I have you figured out. I have you well scouted. But another wrist lock by Regal, who is getting the cheers, as I would expect from the crowd in the UK. But Brian, who is going to engage in slightly heelish behavior. I mean, he's a face on TV, but he's he's not getting booed by any stretch of the imagination. We do have another clean break. So again, you know, perfect scientific match. Let's get out the white lab coats, the Erwin Meyer flask, the Bunsen burners, everything. So we get a trade of European uppercuts. And Regal has to back off. He has Brian trapped in the corner. But this referee, who, once again, is mic'd up way too freaking loud. You can just hear everything that he's saying. This leads in to a test of strength with Regal and Brian. As Josh Matthews and Matt Stryker... I don't know. Maybe I'm just hearing this wrong, but I'm just I'm just putting my hand over my face in the manner of Patrick Stewart in that Star Trek meme. Many of the younger superstars here in WWE look to William Regal as a, a leader of the locker room, a judge and a jury kind of. And Daniel Bryan's going to really need to, to earn the respect not only of William Regal, which I'm sure Daniel already has, but the respect of the entire WWE locker room. I'm sure the monitors in the back are completely sold out, and if they're not, they should be. I couldn't understand what the hell Stryker was getting at there, because was he talking in kayfabe or wasn't he? Because if he's talking in kayfabe... I, it kind of makes sense in terms of, oh, well, Daniel Bryan is still relatively new. He's about a year in, year and change, year and a half, whatever. So he has to earn the respect of the locker room. But at the same time, it's like, all right, well, he's accomplished a lot in that year and a half. So why is it all about still earning respect? Or is it not kayfabed and he has to earn respect as if his work in the 2000s in ROH and 
in Japan don't matter. I, I couldn't make sense of this. And maybe I'm nitpicking here. I, I, I don't know. But I know a lot of people don't particularly care for Matt Stryker. So I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the reason, like something like that. But maybe, maybe I, I just am nitpicking on this entire thing. I'm sure that Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, is extremely well-respected all along because it's not like I've heard anybody come out and say, hey, yo, what, what a dick. <laughs> what a dick Danielson is. Oh, my God. Kicks to the midsection by him. And then a sudden German suplex by Brian. That was, that was the way that I had to call it. And then I, I, I wrote it down that way. And then I thought, boy, sudden German is not a thing that has been good throughout history, particularly 1914 and 1939, as Regal ends up on the outside and Brian kind of hits him with a knee to the head from the ring apron. So kind of a high-impact move as they go into a commercial break. But I actually don't see the ad on YouTube. Maybe I had rewound and fast-forwarded. I, I, I don't know. It was just a black screen for about 10 seconds. And then into the corner, Regal regains the advantage coming out of the break with some shoulder blocks and European uppercuts. And he's not breaking clean at this point. So it's kind of indicative of Regal at this point knows, you know, he's, he's an older guy in there with Brian, who's about 30, 31. So the longer this match goes, it's going to benefit Daniel Bryan. So now he's desperate to try and end this match. See, that's how you kayfabe stuff right there. I still have my analyst chops at least a little bit as Brian kind of explodes out of the corner once again with kicks and now starts working the left leg, which makes sense because you can see that Regal has a rather conspicuous white bandage hanging uh, out of both sides of a knee brace that he is also wearing. But Regal with an exploder suplex suddenly, so sudden exploder, uh, that's usually not good throughout history either. And then he locks in a dragon sleeper, although Josh Matthews is... Not going to call it that because, you know, Ultimo Dragon isn't under contract. Regal breaks at a certain point, though, rather than continuing to apply the hold because he wasn't getting a submission out of it and it looked like he wouldn't. So Brian then catches the leg and wraps it around the ring post. This is kind of the heelish action that I was talking about. But that's really about as far as it goes for Brian. He does keep it pretty scientific here because he doesn't get booed at all and this crowd is really behind regal and he starts going after the left leg brian like like a hawk and regal's having issues getting back to a vertical base half crab locked in by brian who gets kicked off after a little bit two more tries he's kicked off each of those as well a single leg takedown by Regal as he desperately tries to regain the advantage. And then he kind of dr- drops a surprise elbow to the chest rather quickly. Didn't see that coming. And we get a slugfest in the middle with European uppercuts plenty. As Brian then, kind of out of nowhere, hits a kick to the side of the head. Not not like an enziguri, but more like, I, I don't know, just, just a kick to the head. I mean, it is what it is. And this knocks Regal on his face and allows Brian to apply what was then known as the LaBelle lock. I believe that they changed it to the yes lock once all that stuff came along, and he gets an immediate submission from Regal. Now, this is important because, yeah, Regal could have sat there in the hold struggling for 12 seconds, but by immediately submitting, he he, he knew he was cooked. 
And by immediately submitting, he puts over Daniel Bryan even stronger than he would have had he waited 10 or 15 seconds to do the tap out. This is fantastic stuff. Look, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like a match on you on the YouTube show. It's, it'd be like praising something that was on AEW Dark to, to high heaven, which I'm sure that there's probably been something okay, but I am going to say that there's not anything on the Daniel Bryan versus William Regal from the year 2011. Of course, as I mentioned, I saw Ramen Head with Bryan face-to-face in the ring, which kind of made me sad because it's it's going to be a good match because Brian's going to carry Ramen Head as he carries everybody else to at least a decent match, you know, kicking and screaming. But he's probably not going to win the title because Daniel Bryan doesn't need a title because he's already a freaking all-time great. He, he's amazing. This whole show has been a, a, an extended love letter to Brian Danielson. And if, if you're listening, in the extremely unlikely event, that he's listening to this program. I just want to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for not watching wrestling through your entire prime and basically missing out on one of the all-time greats when he is, you know, just sitting there right in front of me, born in my generation, you know, everything I could want in a professional wrestler. Except maybe, you know, yeah, he's, he's not huge or anything, but he sure as hell makes up for it in every other category. And that'll do it for November 10th, 1919. See, this is this is where I get screwed up because I'm in the 21st century here. I mean, th- this is a show... I, I was living in this house when this show originally aired. So, in any event, that'll do it for WWE Superstars for November 10th in the year of our Lord, 2011. See, I got it right. thinking that I was on somebody else's podcast that's coming out soon, and I was supposed to plug it, but that actually never took place. So <laughs> apparently I'm screwing with my own head here. But hey, I love being on other people's podcasts. <laughs> it's a hell of a lot easier than laying down all the audio on this one. You know, just you know, put on the damn headset and talk. But in other podcasts this week, the Our Vantage Point podcast, episode 230, You know, I did this whole bit last week, but their unsung hero segment is on one of my favorites, D'Lo Brown, particularly catcher's equipment, D'Lo Brown, at least when he would wear like the chest protector. I I always enjoyed that. And particularly that one spot in the 1999 Royal Rumble where he did the frog splash on, on Stone Cold Steve Austin. That never gets old for me. It's like the one good part of that Royal Rumble. And my good pal Steve Bennett, he and Dave Rollins, 24-inch podcast, looking at a topic which is very near and dear to my heart, SummerSlam 91. Obviously, Keithy and I, we've been talking a lot of July and now into August of 1991 WWF. So, something very near and dear to my heart. So, do check those out. I had mentioned my NFL wins pool draft earlier in the show, and I mentioned you know the concept for it towards the end of last week's program. Well, the teams that I ended up with in this draft. Now, remember, you have to take two of the top teams, two of the middle 11 teams, and then two kind of bottom feeders. So I ended up with a lineup of the Los Angeles Rams, Rams, 
<laughs> There's a lot of big markets here. The New Orleans Saints, which I'm hoping for the best. That's Steve Bennett's New Orleans Saints. Los Angeles Chargers. God, I hope they don't lose every game by one score like they do every year. Dallas Cowboys, New York Giants is part of my, well, somebody has to be half decent in the NFC East theory. And the Jacksonville Jaguars. And you must be like, all right, Pete, why the hell would you pick Jacksonville? Well, my choices at the, that point in the draft were Detroit, Houston, and Jacksonville. Now, what are you going to choose out of all of those? Because I base everything around, do they have a decent quarterback? Do they have a decent head coach? Or failing that, do they at least have a decent defense? So I, I, I'm okay with Trevor Lawrence because it is my contention that Urban Meyer will resign mid-season, Bobby Petrino style. Jacksonville will be like 5-8 and eight at the time, so not too terrible, but he'll he'll claim stress from the horrific eight losses or, or whatever. So anyway, I don't have a lot of respect for college football coaches overall. I just wanted to get that in to the podcast right now. Next week's show is going to be a little bit more traditional. I think I'm going to go back to something that's more in my wheelhouse here. I mean, you know, this era, it's interesting to look at every so often. So sorry, 2010 ROH show. I'm going to have to do you on another day. It's it's not going to happen next week. Don't know if it'll be WCW, WWF, or, God, the NWA. I, Jim Crockett promotion. I, I, I have no idea. It's going to be one of those whatever strikes my fancy i have no idea how i came upon that i remembered this match seeing this match years ago with brian and regal and just deciding to go with that one over an episode of velocity from 2003 which featured john cena versus brian danielson <laughs> i thought this one because because it was two of my all-time favorites not to say that cena isn't but that was just a completely different era on of him for Vinny Vegas, I'm not going to do a full Vinny Vegas corner because week one of the NFL season is always kind of weird to figure out. Like, it, you can actually get a lot of value when it comes to the point spreads. And I don't have a great deal of confidence in some of my picks. I will take the Rams laying seven and a half against the Bears because I think that they're, they're going to start out the season by destroying teams, the Rams, I think, now that they have an actual quarterback. I kind of like the Raiders at home on the Monday night, plus four and a half. So maybe I am doing a Vinny Vegas corner. Who knows? And I think I will also go with the Cleveland Browns getting six against Kansas City. No, no, you know what? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm just going to take the Jaguars giving three on the road because I think that's the weirdest possible pick that I can make. Jacksonville is favored by three on the road. Didn't they go one and 15 last year? That is the weirdest freaking thing I've ever heard of. So I don't know. We'll see how that goes. But please, if you've enjoyed this show or prior shows, you know, if modern wrestling isn't your cup of tea, but Daniel Bryan and William Regal are timeless. And that is my argument here today that, Please leave a five-star review for Green's Downtown GFA Live on Apple Podcasts because it provides what is known as social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this podcast. And thank you so much for listening, and tune in next time for another exciting episode of Green's Downtown. <laughs>